This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. What's happening? A lot for us to do on a Monday drive. I want to spend some time on Drew Brees from strictly a Panthers point of view, and we'll do that in just a bit. But a day after Schefter reported the feeling across the league being Deshaun Watson's played his last snap in Houston, we have Ian Rappaport now saying the teams across the league are already calling the Texans about Deshaun, specifically naming the Dolphins, the Jets, and yes, the the Carolina Panthers as teams to keep an eye on who might be able to land Deshaun. As exciting as this all is for Panther fans proficient in Photoshop, this all strikes me as agent and front office posturing until Deshaun officially asks for a trade. Unless that happens, I'm under the impression he's going to continue quarterbacking in Houston. He's upset. That's pretty obvious. But he hasn't asked for a trade. That's the part that's been overlooked in Rappaport's reporting from today. It's normal to be upset in a relationship. I don't care what type of relationship it is. Coworkers, friends, your wife, your kids, your parents. There are times we're upset with people and we want different behavior in whatever uh, we're dealing with. We want different behavior, but just because you're upset doesn't mean you're going to ask for a divorce. I think anybody who's been married or anybody in any relationship uh, relationship could speak of a time where somebody gives you the silent treatment. You're not having people return your texts or return your calls. These type of things happen, and I think that's what's happening in Houston right now. Deshaun Watson, he is unhappy, but he did sign a massive four-year contract extension, the money of which not going to kick in until after this upcoming season. So this isn't you're drafted by the team, you didn't choose where you wanted to go, and you're unhappy with your circumstances. No, you were drafted by this team. You went to the playoffs with this team. And you've even won a playoff game with this team. Enough so you felt happy enough to commit to this team long-term less than a year ago. He's upset, but he hasn't asked for a trade. So I'm going to believe Deshaun Watson stays in Houston until he attaches his name to some of this reporting we're seeing out there. You could tweet all you want, quote rap lyrics, have your agent say things to Schefter and Rappaport, until you reach out to the team and say, officially I want out, I'm not going to believe you're going to do something that's truly unprecedented in the sport. That's the piece that needs to be talked about more here as well. If Deshaun Watson forced a trade from the Texans, he will have done something, if he successfully does that, he will have done something no other player in the history of the league of his stature has done. We've seen it in other sports with player empowerment, But we've never seen the star quarterback 
force himself elsewhere when he's committed a long-term contract where he currently stands. Right? We've seen Carson Palmer say, I'm not going to play for the Bengals again, but I don't think anybody is confusing Watson with Palmer, even though Palmer had some good years in the mid-2000s. We've seen John Elway as the first overall pick saying he's going to play baseball if the Broncos, or excuse me, if the Colts draft him, forcing a trade to Denver. We saw the same thing with Eli and the Chargers in 2004, but neither of those players were established with the team that they played for in the league when they forced that trade. This would be unprecedented for Watson to decide to move on, to decide I want out and to force a team to trade him. Plus, I think the Texans can make this right. I really do. Give him some say in the head coaching hire. Usually, I'd say it's not the player's place. That's how I feel about the general manager situation, too. It's not a player's place to have say in who the head coach or who the general manager is, regardless of how good that player is. It's out of line. It's above his head. It shouldn't happen. But the biggest mistake Houston made, according to what's been reported, not what I know, but what's been reported, is that Houston gave some assurance to Deshaun that he would have input in who the general manager and head coach are going to be. And Deshaun didn't get that input before Nick Casario was hired. That's wrong on Houston's part. Do I know that's exactly how it went down? No. There's two sides to every story. But given that there's at worst, or excuse me, at best, confusion on what happened, and at worst, you deceiving your star player, the most important employee in your building, you owe him an apology. You need to take ownership of this. And you owe Deshaun Watson an apology. And if you promised him, say, on the general manager search, or promised him, say, at least input, you got to at least deliver when it comes to head coach as well. And they haven't made a choice on head coach, so I would have Deshaun have some say with that. You opened up this can of worms by either telling him something he thought was him getting input on these decisions or you outright telling him he had input on these decisions. Before I hear anything else, I think you owe Deshaun an apology, and you can fix a lot of these uh, holes, fix a lot of these problems by simply apologizing and having Deshaun have some say with the head coaching hire. He also doesn't strike me. I don't know about you, Robert. He doesn't strike me as the same personality type as a Harden or a Kevin Durant. Maybe even an... Anthony Davis. I guess Durant didn't force himself out. He was a free agent when he left the teams he was on. So I'll just say AD and Harden. And I think a lot of that has to do with football culture. Football is not an individualistic sport the way that basketball is. Football is the ultimate team sport. So when it comes to football, odds are players are going to be more involved at the we than the me albeit there are some exceptions to that, just ask Antonio Brown. Deshaun, he has seemed to be an incredibly kind, charitable person. Look at the way he carried himself on social media today when he learned that there were Texan fans going to the streets wanting to march to convince Deshaun to say. He said he appreciated it. He is flattered by it. 
but he doesn't want people to be infected with COVID, go back home on this Martin Luther King Day. He's faith-driven. Dabo's talked about that. He's team first. I saw a video last week where he gave his agent the exact car from paid in full last week. Just because. Deshaun, really charitable, seemed to be a really good guy, team first. He doesn't strike me as somebody who's going to spurn the Texans, show up out of weight or out of shape like uh, James Harden, I guess, out of weight qualifies too. Uh, I don't see him being that type to hold it over the Texans' head. So I still think he's going to remain in Houston. But if he wasn't going to remain in Houston, <laughs> I think we would be extremely excited to see him traded to the Carolina Panthers. Oh, if he got traded to the Panthers, everything jumps up a notch on this radio show. Everything. So, but what it would what would it take? I don't even know what kind of trade it would take in order for that to happen. Well, I mean, I came up with three of these. I wouldn't say yes to all of these, but I feel like the Panthers would be giving up too much to make it unrealistic. So I made these as realistic as I possibly could. Okay, how many do we got here? I have three. Faux trade proposals here, which could actually be real trade proposals if Carolina is going to make calls to the Texans regarding Deshaun. Give me the first one. The first one is the one that I think everybody's talked about the most, and that's Christian McCaffrey a 2020 first and second round pick, and a 2021 first and third round pick. 2020 first. Or 2021. This year okay. and then next year. Okay. So the eighth overall pick and whatever your first round pick is next year. So it's two first, and a two second, first. and a third. You don't get two seconds. A second and a third. Plus Christian McCaffrey for Deshaun Watson. I think people are overemphasizing the value of McCaffrey just because of the position. I'd probably say no, but Houston would be a lot of fun if they were able to add a quarterback and you have McCaffrey, you have some draft picks. Coaches would like to have those draft picks uh, taking a job versus what Houston has right now. Cupboard's pretty bare in that regard. I'd say no, but that is a pretty appealing option. I'm close to Leonardo DiCaprio in... um, what movie was it? Django Unchained. There you go. Where he's saying, well, at first you have my curiosity, but now you have my attention. Right now you just have my curiosity. Hey, yeah, for the record, I would also say no to that trade if I, I, I'm the Texans. Okay. But maybe not this one. Check this one out. If the Panthers sent Teddy and DJ Moore a 2021 first, second, and third round pick and a 2022 first round pick. So still two first round picks, but... You don't have to give up a second or a third in the year following. You would get rid of Teddy, his money would be off the books, and DJ Moore would leave. So it's the first and second this year and a first next year? First, second, third, and a first next year. I would do that. I would do that if I'm Houston. I get a quarterback who can play the position. It's DJ Moore. It's a top 10 pick. And I'm going to have another first and a couple more picks this year. Remember, I think because of Brandon Cooks, they're not going to have a second-round pick this year. Or a third. Whew. Yeah, you want to restock that cupboard a bit. I might actually think about that one. I like that one a little bit more, surprisingly, than the one that involved McCaffrey. Well, this one's the weirdest one. So you tell me how you feel about this. Right, this one is weird. probably definitely not going to happen, but it's worth taking a, a, a listen to. You trade Christian McCaffrey... And Matt Rule 
for a twenty <laughs> a twenty twenty one first and wow. third and a twenty twenty two first. You make Joe Brady the head coach. You give them wow. a coach they cannot sign and Christian McCaffrey. Wow. So the Texans will get a better coach than there than that's available right now. Hypothetically, yes. They get a Texas guy. He was at Baylor. He was at Baylor. They'd get a first and third this year and a first and third next year. Correct. And McCaffrey? And McCaffrey. Yes. Yes. I don't know who says no. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I I think the Panthers are just like, you know what? Maybe we didn't want Joe Brady to be a, a head coach, but... we Joe just, Brady's <laughs> going to be the head coach of the Panthers. That would be the, the biggest... And he's going to be working with Deshaun Watson. <laughs> right? Yes. I'm here. I didn't know you'd come up with one I'd say yes to. But I think I'm going to say yes to that. The second one, I'm like, eh, maybe. This one, I'm all in on. Yeah, I'd yeah. be cool with it. Matt Rule, McCaffrey, first and thirds this year and next year for Deshaun Watson. Sure. Boom. We did it. You are listening to WSJS Winston-Salem. WCOG Greensboro, WPCM Burlington, WMFR High Point. Those signals make up Sports Hub Triad. That is great work on your part. I just wish it could be real. <laughs> Why not? I just wish it could be real. Uh-huh. And- Instead of just talking, why don't you listen? That's why you have people call in. Listen for a minute. Oh, welcome back to the Happy Circle. This is The Drive with Josh Graham. We'll grade out the ACC weekend that was with a lot of interesting scores with Louisville somehow losing to Miami. I was at Wake Forest. Narrow loss to Virginia Tech last night. Really exciting game at the Joel Coliseum, of course, North Carolina, losing to Florida State. But that was an interesting game at the Tucker Center as well. But right now, we get some behind-the-scenes info. Darren Gant with us here, our friend, Hall of Fame voter, Panthers.com. He was the one putting out stuff first inside the Panthers' offices, what was happening with the GM search all last week, of course, culminating with the hire of Scott Fitterer from the Seattle Seahawks. Okay, just brass tacks, Darren. What is it specifically, what you heard, that separated Fitterer from the other finalists Carolina interviewed? You know, Josh, I'm trying to think back. I've done a number of these, but I feel like I recall talking to you after Marty Herney was fired, and I said, you know, Dave's talking a lot about new ways of doing business and this and that and the other, but this hire is probably going to be a lot more inside the box than a lot of people may think. And Scott Fitterer is a football guy. He's a personnel guy. He's a he's an old scout. And they talk to analytics guys, and they talk to caps and contracts guys, and they talk to guys with just this incredibly varied list of resumes for general manager jobs. And what they came back to was somebody who was a good establishment football guy from a great program. I mean, 98-45-1 over the last nine years for the Seattle Seahawks, it's easy enough to say, we want, we want in on some of that. We, we want one of their guys. And, and Fitterer, I think, is going to be somebody who um, – you know, it's it's going. He probably wasn't the name brand a lot of people were looking for, but you know, here's what we know about Scott Fitter. He's young, comes from a great program, 
um, has a good background himself and has been given the opportunity to um, do enough different things to kind of satisfy some of that new way of doing business qualification Dave uh, Dave Tepper put on this thing. Uh, just, just for the purposes of teasing, we've got a story that will be out on Panthers.com in the next few days um, where we talked to John Schneider from the Seahawks about how he set up his front office and, and how Fitterer stood out and, and kind of handled himself in that environment and why he thinks he's ready for this job. So you'll have to be on the lookout for that soon. Shoot Darren a follow if you haven't already on Twitter at Darren Gant. I want to transition things here to Deshaun Watson, who's in the news. Ian Rappaport had a rapper report earlier this morning <laughs> where he essentially said that many people believe Deshaun Watson's played his last snap in Houston, even though he hasn't requested a trade yet. Carolina might even be in that mix. Here's where I stand. I still think it would be unprecedented for Deshaun Watson to make any type of move, force a hand of an organization. I don't know if he has the personality to do the James Harden, Anthony Davis, force a trade move. So if I had to guess, I still think Deshaun Watson's going to be a Texan when we get the football season. What do you think? Um, you know, I, I think you're probably wise to not go full bore on some of this stuff. And again, I don't want to pull back the curtain too far and talk about other people's business too much. But right now, this is agent talk. And this is front office talk. I mean, these are guys who are saying the things that they want to say. Until Deshaun himself puts his name on it and tells somebody, probably on camera as opposed to in print, uh, to be honest with you, that I want out, it's going to be – they're going to think, and the Texans are wise to think, that Nick Casario and whoever they hire as a head coach can help put this genie back in the bottle. So I, I think you would be foolish if you had a a player like Deshaun Watson on your roster to move him. But if you did and it ever got to that untenable place, then what you have is one of the most valuable commodities in the NFL, a young ascending quarterback who's under contract making a bunch of money, but still still young enough that there's reasonable belief that he can get better in the right situation, and we already know he's pretty good. It should be clear. I think you agree with me on this. Quarterback should not have a say in picking who the general manager is. The problem was nope. that Houston seems to have given Deshaun Watson – some type of assurance that his input would be asked for when they made the general manager search. That's on Houston, not on Deshaun Watson. When it comes to a head coach now, though, when it comes to trying to pick the next guy, Darren, because of that mistake, how much say should Deshaun have and what Houston does next? The same amount. I mean, I, I hate saying it. I mean, nobody believes in the rights of workers the way I do. Well, maybe Bernie Sanders does. I don't know. But um, I, this is not a, a football player call. Organizations have to make decisions on their decision makers. And whoever they hire as a coach, along with the guy they hire to be GM, is going to have the deciding call on what happens with Deshaun. So, you know, I, I don't think you should do that that way because, again, I kick me the next time you see me for sounding like Matt Rule, but so much of this is about having a smart process, and if you create a process where players get to decide who the coaches and GMs are, then I think you've made a mistake. I mean, uh, Deshaun's valuable. His feelings should be 
considered, but at the same time, I think, again, the mistake was made at the Cal McNair level. I mean, when his father died and he was put in charge of a football team, it's reasonable to think that he may not have been prepared to run it the way that business needs to be run and that he might need to go out and bring in people who know about NFL front offices a little more. So um, it'll be interesting to see how it develops, but the big mistake was made by Cal McNair creating an impression that wouldn't be good for anybody. Drew Brees, it looks like he's done playing football, already has his next job lined up with NBC. If it is, in fact, the end of number 9 in New Orleans, can you think of a greater Panther killer over the last 25 years than Brees? Oof. I mean, you're, you're, you would be going back to the Michael Vick days, and, and even then that wasn't nearly the kind of volume you got out of Drew Brees on that one, so probably not. I mean, you know, I, and I think ultimately, you know, Drew Brees strikes a blow for the little guy, and you see uh, quarterbacks like Russell Wilson come into the league and, and have great success, and I don't know if, if they're able to do that if Drew Brees doesn't play at the level he does because, I mean, even then, people, as great as he played, in San Diego early on, you know, he was still a second-round pick because people were worried about his size. Everybody was curious if he was ever going to come back from that injury. Um, he, I said last night, he created a couple of Hall of Fame careers by coming to New Orleans, his own, and Nick Saban's at Alabama. Because when Saban chose wrong on quarterback in Miami and went with Dante Culpepper instead of Drew Brees, that sent him back to college where he probably should have been to begin with. So it's he's had an incredible impact on the game. I mean, he's he's one of those guys. He's we're getting ready for that Hall of Fame meeting tomorrow, and there are going to be some long discussions, but Drew Brees is going to be one of them real, real short discussions. It's not going to take a lot of time to confirm that that guy's a Hall of Famer. Percentage chance Sam Mills gets in this year? This year? Don't know. It's a really crowded field. I always hate handicapping these things because you never really know until you get in the room. How many years in a row has it been now that he's been a finalist? This is his second year in a row as a finalist. So, so if he becomes I, a finalist again, say, next year, what percentage of guys who are finalists three straight years end up getting in? It's a pretty good percentage. It's been in the 90% of guys who get in the room and stay in the room three years in a row eventually get in. The, the difference with Sam is the clock's ticking. And, I mean, he's getting up there in terms of years of eligibility because it was 15, six, I think 16 years before he ever got into the discussion for the first time. So he's not operating with as much runway as some of the other guys. Uh, we're going to have to advance the ball a little bit, uh, the people who are making presentations on Sam's behalf. So it's, um, it's going to be tough this year simply because – that first-year eligible list is so, so strong. I mean, when you look at Manning, you look at Woodson, you, you try to figure out where Megatron fits into this conversation. It's going to be, it's going to be a fascinating meeting. But, again, and, and pray for me in there tomorrow, everybody's got their guy. Don't tell me which one you want in. Tell me which 10 you want out. Because we've got to take a list of 15 guys, maybe all of whom are eventually Hall of Famers, and only pick five out of it. So that's, you know. That, that's my way of getting everybody to sympathize for what a difficult, difficult job I have. Let's get you back on before the Super Bowl happens so we could talk halftime shows. It's good to hear from you, Darren. Uh, keep up the great work at Panthers.com. We'll certainly be following. Sounds good. We'll talk to you all later. There he goes. It's Darren Gant.
joining us from Panthers.com. Busy couple of weeks for that guy, keeping an eye on what's happening with the Panthers GM search. We'll have to see some of the things he was teasing there that we'll find at Panthers.com. Then he's got his Hall of Fame voting meeting tomorrow, and we'll see whether or not some of the voters are game for listening to arguments for Sam Mills, Mr. Keep Pounding himself, potentially getting into Canton. Okay, I've got Graham's grades for the ACC basketball weekend that was. Plus, there's a lot being made about Eric Bieniemy not getting a head coaching job to this point. So I started thinking, what are the football reasons why that might be? Not saying I agree with all the reasons, but I've come up with some football reasons based on some of the things I've read and some of the people I've talked to. I'll share those with you as well next on The Drive. This is just crazy talk. So just listen. You're on The Drive with Josh Graham. We hope you're doing well on this Martin Luther King Day. However, and wherever you're listening, appreciate that. I know some of you might have work off. We are right back at it with playoff football over the weekend and a lot of college basketball, too. I was at the Joel Coliseum yesterday. The Deacons coming up just short again against Virginia Tech. Fourth straight ranked opponent for Steve Forbes Club. Now they're getting set for the North Carolina Tar Heels in the Smith Center on Wednesday. I want to talk about Eric Bieniemy because that's a name that's being talked about quite a bit. I don't think there's a lot of nuance in that discussion. We'll get to that after we get through the grades. Every week, I throw out grades, attaching a letter grade to either a player or a team. This time around, since there's so much action to dissect from the weekend, I'm attaching a letter grade to a team, A through F. We call it Graham's Grades, then Robert throws something random at me. Every week is a test in the ACC. Who passed the test? If one of y'all says some silly ass name. Who dropped the ball? I don't know. Josh Graham has the answers. I think you're very condescending and a know-it-all. Hey, teacher, leave kids alone. Time for Graham's Grades. All right. I like starting with the really good first. It's kind of like... I know professors, Robert, I had in college who would only hand out the A's and B's first. And you just knew the later it went, the bad grades were at the bottom of the stack. I had two professors that were that way in college. And I remember one time he said at the front of the room, it was an exam that we had. Only one of you in this room got an A. Only one of you. And there was easily about 30, 35 people. Well, then he slipped the paper on my desk. Of course, with the grade facing the table. And when I flipped it over and saw that it was an A, Robert, inside I was feeling absolutely elated, Super Bowl-level happy. But you can't really express it in that spot, right? You can't be happy outwardly knowing that you're the only person that has the A. 
Yeah, I used to hate having classes with people that would be like, Oh, I only got a 92. Oh, I only got a 94. Like, shut up. Nobody really cares. You studied. We get it. When you were in high school, what was an A? Uh, 93 and up was an A. This is what confuses me. In college, it's anything in the 90s is an A. Anything in the 80s is a B. Anything in the 70s is a C. So on and so forth. Why in high school did we have the scale where it was 93 and up in A? It's a good question. I have no idea. I know it changed uh, for certain classes in college that aren't graded on a college scale. They're still 93 and up as an A. Anyway, we start with the really good. Here's a team I would say is 93 and up. A. The Virginia Cavaliers. What a message they sent over the weekend. They faced Clemson. First team with the winning record in the ACC they've gone up against. Fifth conference game they played. And they dropped 85 at Little John Coliseum. They had 80 against Notre Dame. 5-0 Cavaliers in ACC play. That is a scary proposition. We've all heard the jokes. Virginia, they're just trying to score double nickel. Maybe score 60 in a game. And that's going to be enough for them to win with their pace of play. The idea they're scoring 85 at Clemson against a really good Tiger team, one that was ranked 12th in the AP poll, and still only allowing 50 points with that many possessions, terrifying. Terrifying to watch Virginia play that kind of way offensively. They're in A. B. Florida State. If you want to talk terrifying, 105 against NC State will do the trick. They cooled down a little bit against North Carolina. It's a B for me because you just set the expectations way too high going into that matchup. There were points where they got banged up and they had to try and you know mix up their lineups a bit. MJ Walker, when he went down, that was a scary sight for the Knolls considering Scotty Barnes didn't play in the game. Really like FSU's depth. There's a reason why going into the year. I had Virginia as my preseason pick and Florida State as the second-best team in the league. Both those teams are starting to look like it, sending messages over the last week. C. The North Carolina Tar Heels. They might have lost the game, but I still feel like it was a positive step for them. It was the first time in three or four games North Carolina shot over 40% in a basketball game. Anthony Harris had not played since December 30th of 2019, comes off the knee injury, and he really turns around the Tar Heels when Leaky Black got in foul trouble. I liked what I saw from the Tar Heels. They didn't win the game. They were resilient. Anthony Harris seems like a legit player for this lineup. It's a C. They didn't win the game, but I still think they're trending upwards. D. Two teams. Wake Forest and Clemson. Clemson, this was your opportunity. I can't be too mad at it because, well, you're coming off a COVID situation. Some teams respond great, like Florida State did last week. Most haven't really looked sharp coming off the stoppage. NC State, when they came back for the first time against St. Louis, that was their only loss in out-of-conference play. So I can't give them an F for losing by 35 to the Virginia Cavaliers. But it was disappointing that they allowed that many points to a team that isn't known for scoring in the 80s, generally. Wake Forest, 
Five straight losses to start ACC play for Steve Forbes. Kind of like with Clemson. Really hard to blame them for that. Nobody across the country has been dealt a worse hand than Coach Forbes' team. Guys, they battled. They, they fought back in the game. But the bigs getting in foul trouble. That's where I had issues. At the end of the first half, Musius, Odiaguama, and, and uh, I, I, I name slips my mind of what Akpomo, they all had two fouls next to them, and Kivio Luma had five block shots. Wake couldn't do anything in the post. That's a terrifying sight going into a game where you have to face Armando Baycott, Garrison Brooks, Dayron Sharp, and Walker Kessler. That's why they were D. F. Louisville Cardinals. You lost to Miami, man. You can't be the best team in the ACC by our estimation than lose a game to Miami when they don't have McGusty and they don't have Chris Likes. And in this game, I don't even think they had Earl Timberlake either. Uh, Miami was playing with seven or eight dudes and they beat the Miami Hurricanes? Or excuse me, beat the Louisville Cardinals? That's a really bad loss for Chris Mack's team. That is an F as far as I'm concerned. Robert, give me something random to grade. Uh, yeah, I'd like you to grade these three presidents how you'd think they'd fare as basketball players. Woodrow Wilson, William Taft, and Teddy Roosevelt. Wow. Roosevelt, Taft, and who was the last one? Woodrow Wilson. Okay. Woodrow Wilson, in the portraits I've seen of him, very thin. But I imagine he's tall. I mean, you can look it up how tall Woodrow Wilson is. He seems tall in the portrait. So I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to go B. Woodrow Wilson is a B for me. B. Woodrow Wilson actually tall. played center at Davidson. There you go. I didn't know that. But he looks tall and he looks like a center. So B is right. Taft definitely playing center. Yeah, he was the the stuck-in-a-bathtub prison. I'm worried about conditioning with him, so I'll go a leg down. I think he could be pretty good in the post if he gets it deep underneath the basket, but not a lot of scoring. I'll give him a C. C. Teddy Roosevelt? That's an A, man. Come on. A. With that stash, I'm expecting Phil Jackson early 70s with the Knicks type game from one Teddy Roosevelt. I'm a little sour on Teddy. I do love his Rough Riders stuff, but I don't like that he tried to ban football at one point. Not a fan of that. Gotta remember, his son almost died playing football. I think he was a big part of getting some common sense changes to the sport pushed through, though. So while he maybe almost killed football, I think he also helped football too, didn't he? Yeah, but, I mean, he had the Rough Riders. You got the Green Mountain boys riding all around. You think guys didn't fall off trails? You think guys don't die in public parks? Teddy, come on. All right, let's talk Eric Bieniemy for a second. I'm kind of annoyed at where the conversations ended up with him, where immediately, if he doesn't get hired, why? Because there's racism in the NFL's process? That's what it's become. If Bieniemy doesn't get hired, well... Clearly, it's because of systemic racism in the NFL's operation. Now, I think there are problems with the pipeline. We've talked quite a bit about the pop pipeline, uh, and I've spoken to folks with the Knight Commission who have said as much that the pipeline's what you need to focus on, not the amount of hires that are being made. But what's being left, in, left out of this conversation with 
Eric Bieniemy and why he might not be getting head coaching jobs are a couple of legitimate reasons that might be holding him back. Number one, his team's still in the playoffs. I'm not sure if most people know this, but unless it's in the wild card round, coaches that are on teams that have a bye aren't allowed to talk to other teams interested in them until their team's done playing. That rule had to be changed this weekend to allow for the Texans to speak to enemy and for the Eagles to speak to enemy as well. So that's number one, and it's also played a role in hurting Josh McDaniels in the past when the Patriots advanced far through the playoffs on a handful of occasions. He also isn't calling plays for the Chiefs. That call at the end of yesterday's game, that was Andy Reid's call. It hasn't stopped other Andy assistants, Andy OCs, from getting jobs, but timing is important. Doug Peterson, he gets the job. Well, Doug Peterson just got fired, so maybe some might have second thoughts about hiring someone who had the same position that Peterson did. You look at Matt Nagy the same way. He's not necessarily in the best standing with the Chicago Bears. It's understandable to try and wonder how much of the success is Andy, how much of it is Mahomes, how much of it is Biennemi. And you don't want to get locked into an Adam Gase situation. It goes back to timing. Adam Gase, he gets his first job because Peyton Manning vouched for him back with his Denver days and all the records he broke. It feels like similar things might be happening with the enemy, and teams understandably want to do their due diligence. You are listening to WSGS, Winston-Salem, WCOG Greensboro, WPC in Burlington, WMFR High Point. Those signals make up Sports Up Giant. What are you talking about? What's he talking about? I'm talking about the one and only Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. Uh-huh, you know what it bees. Cheese said Alicia Keys, I'm going Swiss cheese, big G's. Falling hard like big meat, big league. Super Bowl champ, big ring, big bling. Lil Wayne's back? I used to love Lil Wayne. And now he is a huge Green Bay Packer fan. Put out a song the last time they won a Super Bowl in 2010. He now has this song out. Very creatively calling it green and yellow. Robert, did I tell you once upon a time that I did a rap parody for Black and Yellow by Wiz Khalifa? No, but I'm so glad you didn't tell me about it. Right. It's somewhere in the annals of the internet. I don't know where it ended up. I'm glad that I tried searching it one time and I couldn't find it. So it's officially dead and gone. Can't be used against me as ammunition in any kind of way unless some of you are better at the internet than I am, and that is perfectly possible. Lil Wayne's not a thing anymore? Nah, not really. Uh, I mean, he comes out with new music, but I, I I wouldn't say he's like relevant in the the rap genre. What's that song that Diddy was also big on? Uh, the one that goes... One, two, three, one, uh, uh. You know what I'm talking about? No. Hell no. You you and my dad would get along great. Because he, what's that song that goes like, you, and I'm a dun dun. Me and your dad would have never hung dun, dun, dun. out. What is that song? Your I dad does know. that? Yes. I think I know exactly what your dad's talking about, though. I'm like, pull up Shazam, dude, and just hum it. I don't know is what he to doing, tell you. I don't get, no. Is dun, that, dun, dun, dun. yeah, yes. I understood what your dad was talking about there. You didn't understand? You didn't give him the right answer? I'm just saying, like, if you know that much of it, just figure it out yourself. Like, 
I don't know the recent song that he had. But you gave zero. You gave me zero. You said, one, two, three, four, uh-huh. Like, I don't know if that's Kevin Rudolph Rock or, like, I don't know what it is. You turned it into war. What's it good for? Uh-huh. That's what you turned it into. I'm about to find this damn remix you did, and we're going to play it. We keep talking about this. <laughs> it's the one, Where Did Love Go? I don't know if that's the title, but now you probably know what I'm talking about, right? I, I probably still have to hear it. Okay. Brian Geisinger is going to be here in 15 minutes. We'll out-precise the Geis. But what about the weekends Virginia and Florida State had? I'll even expand it out to the weeks that they've had. Before the year, I picked both Virginia and Florida State to be the top tier of the ACC. I felt those were the teams that had the best shot at winning the conference. In terms of a regular season title, it's a little bit more difficult to pick who's going to win in March, both the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournament. But over the span of a regular season, I liked the returning talent on Virginia. I liked some of the additions they've had. You really started to see some of the recruiting help Virginia from the national title win. They're technically still the defending champs since there wasn't a March Madness last year then you got florida state dropping 105 on nc state then without scotty barnes and for a stretch without mj walker beating north carolina that i felt a north carolina team i felt was playing its best ball of the season it was a real clear message sent by those two teams we talked about for weeks is this the year in the acc where things get really weird is clemson gonna win the league virginia tech even Watch them last night at the Joel. Are they capable of winning the conference? This past week, I think, reiterated this point. 2021, it's weird. Weird things are going to happen, kind of like 2020. But don't think teams are going to be better than Florida State and Virginia. Those are the two best teams in this league. Louisville, they're knocking on the door, had a really bad loss to Miami over the weekend. I guess I won't count them out, but the upside for those three teams, Virginia Tech can't touch it, and neither can Clemson. North Carolina and Duke, they're too young to think that they're going to reach their highest potential or by the time they do so, have enough games to try and catch a team that's as polished as the Hokies or, excuse me, the Cavaliers or the Seminoles. But Virginia, the scariest part about it is they're scoring 80 points. When we talked about the Cavs just two years ago, the Hoos, we were talking about a team that, okay, you, you win 60 to 55. You win games with the opposition close, but never exceeding 60 points, it felt like. It was a race to 60 points. Well, that's still the case, the way Virginia's playing defense, but now they're dropping 80. They're dropping 80 in game. I don't know what's more alarming, that Virginia scored 85 in Little John or held Clemson to 50. I don't know what's more alarming because when Virginia scores that many points, Clemson has more possessions and they couldn't exceed 50 points. A remarkable, remarkable performance by Virginia. And Florida State, when they're firing on all cylinders, they're deeper than everybody else. They're longer. They have terrific coaching. They, they have a system that's aggressive. It's really hard to simulate. These are the two best teams in the league. 
I think that's what I've learned over the last week. Robert, we've got out precise the guys in 10 minutes. What have you found? Nothing. I need I need more context clues. Like, what did you do this with? Was this with WZMB? Was this with? Oh no, this was this was even further back than that. Creative services. We could maybe revisit that at another point because I have a question for you. Did you see in Colorado over the weekend that hockey's back, but they're not allowing fans? I think at any of these games, I don't know anywhere that is allowing fans. And since there are no fans, you don't really have obligations for what you have to do in terms of a presentation during the game. So during intermissions, what do you have on the scoreboard? What do you have throughout the arena? What type of entertainment do you need if there are no fans? The answer, none. So apparently during the intermission, there was some Colorado Avalanche media that got bored. I think this is actually part of the broadcast team. They got a hold of the projector. They have these really neat projectors where you could do a lot of neat pregame introduction type stuff on the ice. It projects on the ice. Well, the Avs got a hold of this, their media, and during the intermission, one of the broadcasters was playing solitaire on the ice. So rather than having a television monitor, your monitor was the Colorado Avalanche Pepsi Center Ice playing solitaire. Which has me asking an obvious question. Three-card or one-card draw. Yeah, that's mine too. Because if you just do the one-card draw, why are you even playing solitaire? Like, it's not a game. If you're doing three-card draw, then then there's some skill to it. Because you know, oh, maybe I don't want to pull this yet because I know I'm going to put a first card in behind another card. Which brings me to another point. If you're going to play that at all, you might as well play Spider Sail. Because playing the regular solitaire doesn't help your your quick wit as much as the spider does because it's a lot more moving of the cards around and it takes a lot more practice. But when I looked at the video, I saw that it was it was a three-card draw, so that makes a lot of sense. Because one-card draw, what are you, some kid with no Wi-Fi? <laughs> Good question, Josh. I'm glad you asked this. I was going to say, what's the biggest screen you've ever played video games or card games on? Uh. That was the question I was going to go with. Probably like 72 inches, I guess, is the biggest. Yeah. But it brought me to this question, too. If you're going to play a computer game that comes for free, why would you not play, like, pinball? Do you ever play the pinball on the regular uh, computers? Yeah, it's like a pinball machine. Yeah, 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 but it's like... uh, you still have like a, a a story with it, like mm-hmm. it's like the space themed. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. I, I'm thinking, what would be the most game to play with the ice being your screen? I think maybe like a first person shooter would be fun. But then again, you're so far away from the ice if you're in the press box. Especially, I've been to the one in Colorado. It is far away from the ice. That's probably not best. You're probably going to be missing crouching people behind boxes who are going to snipe you out if you're trying to play from that far. Yeah, and so then, maybe like Mario Kart. Yeah, that's the best answer, I feel like, because then you get the turns in it, and then if you have a violent video game, though, that gives the opportunity for people to be offended. Like, oh, I brought my child here to watch hockey, this violent sport. Not people get headshot. Well, nobody's in the nobody's in the stands. Okay, then why? <laughs> then why does this even matter? Well, no, I'm no, I'm saying if you are a broadcaster who doesn't have to be on air for the next twenty minutes during an intermission, 
What game are you turning on? There's nobody else in the stands. This guy just decided to play solitaire on the ice. Yeah, I probably wouldn't play Mario Kart then because I want to do a full circuit. That's four races, and I don't think you would be you able to get You could get four races in in 20 minutes. I don't know, man, because I feel like if you pick the as fun long as, ones... As long as you're not playing Rainbow Road, you're good. If you're on the new Wii's, I don't think you have a choice in most circuits. They oh, I don't play Wii. I don't play the Wii Mario Kart. Those are fun, though. No, the, it's not. The Switch one. Yeah, it's it, not. What do you mean? No, it's not fun. I, I hate having it so sensitive when you're turning the controller. It's not as fun. Well, you can have it so it's not motion controlled. It's just analog and the buttons. It's not as fun. Okay. Three items on the agenda for Brian Geisinger. Who's going to join us? He joins us every single week for MacyCSports.com. What is the best option at point guard for the Tar Heels right now? Now that we've seen Anthony Harris back in the lineup, Leaky Black, I said last week, I think right now he's better than Caleb Love and R.J. Davis in terms of ball security. Caleb Love had a really good game. R.J. Davis has been a little bit more consistent. We'll see what Geisiger thinks about that. He also did a deep dive on ACCSports.com on Wake Forest basketball with Steve Forbes. He'll tell us what he's learned there, and we'll play out precise the guys. All that next on The Drive. Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. Now being joined by Brian Geisinger, our resident ACC hoops nerd, who we call the Geist. In just a bit, we'll be out precising the Geist or attempting to do so. You know him from accsports.com and on Twitter at bgeist underscore bird, breaking down all things hoops. Before we get to North Carolina, which lost to Florida State this past weekend, and I want to talk about the point guard situation specifically with the Tar Heels, let's get to Wake Forest because you had a deep dive into the Demon Deacons. You looked at the first few games of the conference season for Steve Forbes. He's lost his first five conference games. That shouldn't really surprise anybody considering the long layoff and the last four games being against ranked opponents. He's getting set for the Tar Heels on Wednesday night at the Smith Center. But you had a long deep dive. I, I saw him in person the last two games. It's a really aggressive, feisty group. Uh, Coach Forbes has him playing hard. But what did you find most encouraging from your deep dive into the Deeks? Yeah, I think it's important to remember with Wake this year, and I, I tried to stress it in the in the piece, like A – you just can't look beyond like just how hard COVID hit that team. I know Steve Forbes has even come on your show. He's talked about this. He's come on Adam Gold's show. He's talked about just how bad it was. And, you know, the layoff, they, a month, in, over a month in between games. So you can't downplay that. And I also think with Wake, you just can't, you can't go off wins and losses. Like I know the ACC is a little down this year, but there still are a lot of good teams. Um, Wake is, is, you know, somewhere in terms of ranking teams is in the bottom tier and it's probably 14 or 15. So most nights they're going to not going to be favored to win. They're going to be at a disadvantage. So you've got to look for other stuff. And what I was trying to sort of go for in the piece was Olivier Saar, as, as you know, in the spring, he decided to leave town and go to Kentucky. And that's totally within his right. He's actually pr played pretty well for Kentucky this season, even though uh, UK is certainly underperformed. Um, but like without SAR and with the new coach coming in with lots of turnover to the roster, I think it's sort of, it's hard to find an identity in terms of like, 
who's on the court. There's no, you don't, it's not like, oh, let's run, you know, 10 post-ups a game for Olivier and 10 pick and roll possessions where we try to really target him. Um, there's really, I think, an emphasis put on the system in a team that's shooting more three-pointers under Steve Forbes than any team he's ever coached before. Um, and as you also could remember, when he was putting this roster together in the spring and looking for transfers and grad transfers and guys that could come in and help the roster next season or this season, he found shooters, you know, Davion Williamson, Jonah Antonio, uh, Ismail Masood, who was already on the roster, but he basically re-recruited him to the program. And so, yeah, it's like, I know it's tough right now. They're losing a lot of games, albeit they were, they only lost to Virginia tech by four over, um, over the weekend. I just think it's encouraging because like, I think there's more spirit. I like what I like the sort of buy-in they're getting from the system. And I think over stretches of time, maybe not full games, but you've seen good moments, including uh, the first half up in Charlottesville against, you know, Virginia, who's sort of firing on all cylinders right now too. I look at um, North Carolina's point guard situation, transitioning things a bit. Brian Geisiger's with us here. B guys underscore bird read his stuff, accsports.com. Last week I said, right now, this isn't the long-term answer, but right now I think Leaky Black's the best point guard for the Tar Heels offensively. When you consider he doesn't turn over the basketball, or at least not as much as Caleb Love and RJ Davis had. And on top of that, he's this this Tar Heel team is not one that needs the point guard to do a whole lot of scoring. It reminds me in some sense, like the 2011 and 2012 Tar Heel teams with Kendall Marshall, who never averaged double-digit scoring, because if he shot the ball, that was just one less shot that Harrison Barnes, Tyler Zeller, John Henson, among others, got in that game. I think Reggie Bullock was on that team as well. Uh, that's that's how I view the Tar Heel point guard this time around, but North Carolina has a lot of talent there. Caleb Love, we saw it. He had a number of threes on Saturday. R.J. Davis, I think he's been a little bit more consistent than Caleb. When you look at the Tar Heel point guard situation now that Anthony Harris came in and gave North Carolina a lot of good things on Saturday, who do you think their best option is there? Yeah, right now I I do think it's R.J. Davis. Like I I see the and, and to be clear, like you know Caleb Love is is the best prospect. Um, but this year has obviously been been really, really tough for him. It was nice to see him get loose for a couple of threes in that like pick six dunk that he had against FSU. That was uh that was encouraging stuff, but still so many issues with decision making and, and off ball defense. Um and a team like Florida, a team like Florida State is also gonna gum up a lot of stuff that UNC wants to do, like FSU with their switching and their length, all their denial. That that erases a lot of like UNC secondary offense, like right off the jump. So that's a tough matchup for UNC too. I see what you mean with Leaky because a he's a he's an important defender. Uh, he's got some playmaking chops for him, and again because of his defense, you want him on the court. But when Leaky's on the court and doesn't have the basketball, he can be a tough fit offensively because there's just no three point element to his game whatsoever. So. You know, if you have Leaky handling the ball, at least you can dot the three-point line with guys like Playtech and Walton that have shot pretty well so far this season. But I thought R.J. Davis was really solid against Syracuse, just sort of like getting UNC in and out of its stuff, running the secondary break. I thought he was terrific in that game, and he actually played pretty well against uh, down in Tallahassee against Florida State. So I'll still go with R.J. Davis 
and and long term still am very excited about Caleb Love in a, in a UNC uniform. But just yeah, this year is um, you know it's it it has been tough for Caleb Love. It has not not gone great um, in Chapel Hill this season. Before we do out precise the guys, do we have that Lil Wayne Green Bay Packers song that he did? For the playoff run here. Can we pull that back up? It's the first time I've thought about Lil Wayne in a while, who I was a big fan of circa 2007, 2008. Here's some of his Packers-specific green and yellow song from the past week. Uh-huh. You know what it bees. Cheese said Alicia Keys. I'm going Swiss cheese. Big G's. Falling hard like big meats. Big league. Super Bowl champ. Big rings. Big bling. Lombardi trophy. Yeah, bitch. I actually enjoyed it. It was longer than I thought it would be, about a three-minute, um, I guess we could call it a sample of uh, Wiz Khalifa's Black and Yellow. But since you're somebody that really cares about hip-hop, it's something that matters to you, huge Outkast fan, where does Lil Wayne belong in the hierarchy of, let's call it, 2000 to 2010 hip-hop artists? Oh God, he, he very important. And what is funny though is he. This is the second time he's remixed that song because the year that the Packers won the Super Bowl, like the 2010-2011 season, which was also the year that this song "Black and Yellow" by Wiz Khalifa actually came out. Like Lil Wayne did a Green and Yellow remix that year. That oh. was the 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 Rogers Super Bowl season, uh, literally a decade ago. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. Lil Wayne had a stretch probably like in the mid to late aughts where he was like the, where he was calling himself the best rapper alive. And it it was, it probably wasn't all that (laughs) big of a stretch. Um, yeah. So last decade, less relevant. Uh, these things for most guys tend to sort of like come and go and fade quickly, but he had a little bit of longevity. And and again, his stretch during like the mid aughts was, um, pretty spectacular who do you know for sure more important in hip-hop than Lil Wayne to you that era that era just off the top of your head who do oh, you I know? mean Kanye West Jay-Z yeah. uh-huh. like the, the the biggest of big names obviously because like Lil Wayne was was in that category but like you know come on man. I put, Akon Akon T-Pain Lil Wayne I, rank I put I put Outkast above everybody you know, regardless of the era and let's remember Speaker Box and Love Below did come out in 2003 <laughs> 2004 so it's in that range as well too and that's like one of the most important hip hop records in the history of music so Outkast a- still still in the conversation Akon Lil Wayne T-Pain rank them uh like all those guys, um, man, T-Pain is like it, hilariously talented. His uh, his like NPR Tiny Desk concert is really Me like and- an all time good one. He can really sing. So I'll go, I'll go. Lil Wayne one, Acon or a, the T-Pain two, Acon three. How did, about that? did Darren? I'm not sure if I told you, but did Darren tell you about the time me and him went to a T-Pain concert two years ago? Yes, yes, Darren Vaught did tell me about that okay. once. Yeah. yeah, we didn't realize yeah. it was Wake Forest. Uh, it was their homecoming concert. So it yeah. was only students in the Joel pretty much <laughs> who would have been four or five when I'm Sprung came out, really mm-hmm. excited about it. So it was a really important moment in me and Darren's friendship. Maybe when things get back to normal, hopefully we can see Outcast if they tour again or maybe T-Pain in the future. But for right now, Brian, because we're focused on the now and the present. It's time to out-precise the guys. 
Brian Geisinger is a basketball genius. Josh Graham, uh, is not. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big, you're little. I'm right, you're wrong. Listen as Brian launches half-court shots and Josh, well, double dribbles all over himself. And there's nothing you can do about it. Get off the bench and try to out-precise the guys. Before we get too deep into this, it's like Brian is trying to become my Zion or something. He's talking about NPR Tiny Desk concerts. Like, What is your favorite NPR Tiny Desk concert? Ooh. Lizzo had one recently that she totally tore it all down, I guess, in the last year or so. I'm partial to the Avett Brothers, so I love that. Yeah. Oddly enough, Jeezy had a really good one. I'm probably going to sound super basic here, but I love the Mac Miller one. Max was so good. That was a really good one. Uh, but starting off, guys, I don't know if you guys heard or not, but the Nets Big Three had <laughs> its first game, uh, albeit without Kyrie. He's also out tonight. He is also out tonight. They still managed to score more points than LeBron's Big Three in Miami's first game together. How many more points did the Nets Big Three minus Kyrie score? Oh, we're just talking about the players themselves, yes, not how, the team. How many more points did KD and James Harden score than the big three's Heat? Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, LeBron. I think I remember the Heat. They got off to a really slow start, those three. And I think they played Boston on the opening night. So I'm going to – I'm going to put the number for, uh, for James Harden and KD – so those two outscored the big three. Yeah. Who all played. Correct. Okay. I'm going to go. They had 16 more points. Okay. Josh was 16. What you thinking, guys? All right. I'll go. Yeah. If I remember, like, I think it was you know, like they got off to a bad start that year. And I want to say Bosch wasn't so great in the, the first game, too. Um, I'll, uh, I'll say 20 point difference. 20 more points for Harden and, and KD over the, the Miami Miami Heat big three. Guys, you kill me, man. Uh, the Nets combined, they scored 74. The Heat scored 52 in their first game. That's 22 points. Uh, Guys right. there with 20. And you are such a big brain. Bosch had a terrible game. Bosch scored eight points. It, all right. It, but, That's Josh, surprising. you were right. They also started slow. They lost that game against the Celtics. Going to the second question of out precise the guys Harden is no stranger to triple doubles as he's eighth all time with 47 he's closer to the Oscar Robinson 40 point triple double record that's set at 22 how many more 40 game or 40 game triple doubles does James Harden need to break Oscar Robinson's record at 22 Robertson all right, Josh loses that one, and we're done with Alfred's the guys. <laughs> nah, if yes. you didn't do it a second time, I wouldn't have said it. Um, yeah. All right. How many 40-point triple-doubles he needs to catch Oscar Robertson? To beat his record, correct. Not tie, to beat it. Holy bleep, man. Oscar Robertson, it's stupid when you go into all this stuff. And he has how many? He has 22. Okay. I'm going to say he needs, I'm going to go ridiculous. I think he needs 18 more. 18 more to pass, pass Oscar Robertson's record. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's quite that. I'm going to say five. I'm going to go lower. I'm going to say five. That's much safer on your point. Oscar has 22. James Harden has 15. He needs seven. All right. 
So once again, I, you know, look, look. I was trying to get ridiculous. I, I, I don't know yeah. what your thinking is on some of these. <laughs> That's okay, though. That's okay, because I, I still like us playing the tiebreaker. You guys want to play the tiebreaker yeah. anyway? Yeah, yeah, I've never won yeah. this game. The tiebreaker is always harder, so stay with me here. LeBron, when playing with his big three in Miami, averaged 37.98 minutes. How many minutes did KD average with his Warriors Justice League team? Oh, Not God. the difference. You're just telling me how many minutes he averaged. KD mm. with the Warriors. <laughs> Man, it's funny because it's just a. It's like one. It's like a different era. Even though those weren't that far apart in terms of like player rest and what was acceptable. And those Golden State teams also their starters didn't have to play in the fourth quarter in a lot of these games. So I'll say KD and the. 32 minutes a game. I had 29 and a half written down. 29 and a half. KD averaged 34.06 minutes a game. Hmm. Guys, okay. you're a genius. Send me some NPR Tiny Desk recommendations. Appreciate you hanging I will, out. Yeah, I will do the, that. The, the, the T-Pain one, man. Start there. Start there. Yeah, T-Pain, he won the first season of The Mass Singer. I haven't watched the show since. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't. I'm sorry. Have you seen they have the masked dancer now? Like, what God are we forbid doing? anything work because we're just going to keep milking it. That's like, it. It's kind of like how yep. we approach things on the show. When something's funny, we're just going to keep hitting the sound over and over again until you're sick of it. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, be guys, my man. Thanks for doing this. We'll talk next week. Sounds good. Take it easy, guys. He's on Twitter at guys underscore bird. Our guy, guys, hanging out with us on Sports Hub Triad.